Hello and welcome to the 27th British Football Coaches Network episode of a Developing Your Football World podcast. I'm Matt Ward and I've got with me the man in Vietnam, James McAloon, today. James, how are you doing, mate? Good, mate. Loving that lyrical miracle you just pulled off there. Fantastic. <laughs> I, I was going to say uh, the man from Vietnam, but that wouldn't be actually true because you're not from Vietnam, you're just in Vietnam. The longer you stay, the longer I stay here, I might just become naturalised. You never know. That'd be awesome. So when I do eventually come after this uh, COVID situation has gone and, and come and use your pool and play golf, you know, maybe you get some other benefits like, I don't know, shopping discount or something like this. Or, or like a, a job in, in the football federation <laughs> or in the league. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. You never know. You never know. Strange, yeah. Stranger things have happened. <laughs> how's, uh, how's the golf been? Uh, yeah, it's been okay. I think I've played once since I last saw you. Um, doing all right. Like, I had to take last week off because it rained. So, yeah, a little bit disappointing, but um, saved, a little bit of, saved a little bit of cash on that. So, I might go, go to the range later. Got a bit of a quiet Friday on. So, let's Good see. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. Enjoying it, yeah. Good man. Keep it sticking. And, and even though you just said uh, it's Friday today, this may not go out on a Friday, but... Uh, I've just put a little notification in there. So if this goes out on a Wednesday, do not hold us responsible because James just mentioned it's Friday. No problem. And today, James and I are very privileged to be joined by one of the most highly regarded coach educators in Australia. He's also helped guide a club to their first league title in 22 years. So it's an absolute pleasure to introduce Warren Grieve to the show. Warren, how are you doing, mate, over in Oz? What have you been up to? Doing very well, mate. That's some introduction, by the way. Not uh, bad. By the time we get to the end of this, uh, the bar's quite <laughs> I'm a little worried that we moved that intro. That could go on a slippery slope very quickly. <laughs> That's the only highlight of the pod, mate. We always put a decent intro in. Can, can I also add to that? Anyone that's got enough time to play golf that's in full-time football, I've always got a few questions around that, to be honest with you. <laughs> Have you got the time? <laughs> Got to, but why has it got to take care of your mental mental health and your well-being? You know, I like to get out there. If I'm playing football all the time, I just go to bed dreaming of balls and no one wants to do that. So you've got to get out and um, do, do something else. But I suppose, you know, balls on the golf course as well. But yeah, just, you know, other interest. I'm just not convinced golf would do that for you, though, to be honest with you, because it's the most frustrating sport in the world. <laughs> Warren, let's go back to the start. Well, before you, you went to Australia, basically, you was involved in football, obviously, before in, in the UK. So going back to 2008, where I believe you was working at Stevenage and uh, you, you messed up your knee and then take us from there. What happened, mate? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, before that, I'd done a stint in the, in the US. I'd been there sort of five years on and off doing grassroots coaching, working with um, very young players. Um, and what happened was that I'd actually been re released by Stevenage at that time as a player. Um, and I was a bit, at a bit of a crossroads and didn't know what I was going to do. And then floating around some of the lower leagues, uh, semi-professional-wise, there was a couple of lads that I'd met uh, who were able to provide an opportunity to go over there. So I did that for for a fair few years. And um, that was what really gave me sort of like a thirst for, for coaching. At the time when I was a player, I was probably much the same as every other player that, that you'll hear of, that there's no way I'm going to coach because I'm a player. I, I, I'm just going to be a professional player. All of that sort of stuff that came with it. And then the harsh reality is that you get released and then you have to start to think, is what, what's plan B? So that was a good introduction so to go over there. And from a lifestyle point of view, had a, had a really good time as well. But it gave me that first sort of like step up in, into the coaching world, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And then... What happened was I actually came back to the UK on, on a holiday over Christmas to, to visit family. And Stevenage at the time had just built a uh, brand new academy um, where it would double up not only as a 4D academy, but where third team would train. Um, and at that time, I literally just went to go and have a look at it because I was just being nosy and was just interested. And uh, at the, the, it was ironically enough that the chairman of the club, who's still the chairman today, Phil Wallace, actually on the site and looking around um, and I was, we just had a chat and I told him obviously I used to play at Stevenage um, family is from Stevenage I'm, I'm just here on holiday and then he said well 
actually looking for an assistant manager to sort of run, run the academy. Um, we haven't gone out to advertise yet, but we're, we're going to look to do so. Um, if you, you put in your CV, no guarantees, um, but with your background and what you've done, obviously, over in America, et cetera, there might, there might be an opportunity. So literally coming from back on holiday from America, never went back to America. Um, and uh, I, was at, I was actually at Stevenage for, for four, four and a half years, I think it was. And then that's when the, the knee, uh, had a knee reconstruction playing semi-pro book whilst coaching. Um, and that literally sent me on a downward trajectory in terms of uh, mental headspace, really struggled um, with the whole rehabilitation side of things and not being able to work. It, it forced me to sort of like make a decision, um, I, I not even force me, it forced Stevenage to potentially make the decision. You can't work, unfortunately, you can't keep paying you. Um, you're going to have to uh, potentially get yourself right. And then once you're right, then you can come back. Had family in, in Australia and then just used that as an opportunity. Hadn't been no one from back in the UK and had ever been out to Australia to visit them. And, and they'd been out there for 30 years. So um, I just thought, well, I'm, I'm in a little bit of a crossroads now and I, I, can't, I can't work, I can't coach, I can't play. So I'll just take a year out and do my rehabilitation. So I literally applied. I was 29 at the time, applied for a working holiday visa. I was surprised. So it came within 24 hours. And then I said, I never expected to get it first and foremost. And then said to me, Dad, uh, obviously I haven't been working for a while because of my knee. Can you, can you lend me a thousand pounds so I can go and fly out to, to Australia? Um, and if it hadn't have been for my family being out in Australia, he probably would have said no, but, but fair play to him. Um, he paid for my airfare. He, he put a thousand pounds in my pocket, and, and I, yeah, I flew over to Australia with with one bag, um, and I've been over here for thirteen years now. <laughs> so it's uh, it's incredible how things turn out, and uh, yeah, uh, I, I look back into this day. It's still a still quite a unique but very very funny story, um, and incredibly glad happy that I actually made that that decision to to jump on the plane at that time. So when it, I mean, it, it is amazing just how you can say twist of fates push you into a certain uh, direction. And uh, when you was out in the States and when you came back, was, was the environment kind of, or was your head thinking, you know, this is, you're going you're gonna to go into coaching kind of full time and professionally, or was it still kind of a bit of lifestyle, a bit of coaching just to get you by? And what, what was you thinking at the time? And was it in, not until you went back to Stevenage and started actually working at a professional club when you actually started thinking about, you know, this could be a, a career now? Yeah, all of that, um, again, it was very much in the first instance a lifestyle. It's that sort of thing that you're, you're a young British lad and you get the opportunity to go to America. I've only ever been there on a holiday. Uh, but to actually go out there and do a bit of work it, it, and then get to travel around the country was was phenomenal opportunity. And uh, when we were at Stevenage of Players, um, and, I've, and I've got to throw out a couple of names here, John John Howe um, and Neil Treble, who were our coaches, um, said that we're going to put you through the Level 1 coaching badge and every single player, and that's why I go, we all do it when we're playing. Uh, I said, I'm not going to need that. I'm going to be a player. What do I need that for? But it actually turned out being the most important throughout all of my coaching and education, um, as schooling, uh, academic education. That became the most important qualification or bit of paper that I had that then started me on my journey as a coach because I was only able to go to America because I had that qualification that Stevenage basically forced me to get. Um, so yeah, that, that that was incredible to, to to have that, but it was still very much just yeah, go and have have a good time, do a bit of coaching, but but to to sort of like travel around the US and uh, and really make the most of that. That there was no real intention of being a, a full time career coach, and it wasn't until I actually came back, um, not the time when I when I bumped into Phil Wallace. It was actually a year before that when my dad said, uh, "You got to make a decision." Um, you can't just keep going over to America for three to six to nine months at a time, come back, live at home, eat us out of house and home, and then basically just go back to the US. You've got to actually take it seriously. And that was when I, I said to my dad, I goes, look, I've been doing it for a while, and it, this is coming into year five, but I, I will give it a go. And I, I really think that football, I just want to be involved in football full time. 
and then that I went back to America and spent the last sort of like six months or so before coming back and then having that chat with Phil Wallace. Once I was afforded the opportunity at Stevenage, which again, um, credits to, to him and a lady who was actually the, the manager of the site at the time, Dawn Lawrence, um, given that opportunity to go into that environment back in your hometown where you've grown up, you've spent many years, you've played for the club, but now you get the opportunity to actually work in full-time football. Um, a brand new, at the time, was a state-of-the-art academy. And I'm sure they've, they've done a lot of work since and, uh, and kicked on. And, yeah, that it was, yeah, just to have that and then go into full-time football was the real catalyst for me to get get that and then want to better myself. And, and whilst I was at Stevenage, they put me through my uh, my UEFA badges. So I did my, my level two um, and then did my UEFA B. And then literally I was about to explore then going, doing the UEFA A. That's when unfortunately the, the knee reconstruction happens. Um, and then, like you say, Twist of Fate finally me then working my way all the way across to the side of the world and here in Australia. Just a, a good lead into Australia. I think covered most things there, Warren. I think the important parts are those little crossroads that happen and making a, a decisive decision to what you want to do. Oh, what obviously just want to know what happened next. You arrived in Australia. Where was the first place your your feet touched the ground? And when you came to Australia, were you thinking, right, I'm going to start football coaching here, or were, was it more again? Was it again a lifestyle choice? Was it I'm going to Australia? It's going to be a good good opportunity to see the family, see the country that I've heard lots about. Or were you going in, going, I'm going to coach football here? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting one because. Uh, Obviously, you've worked in full-time football, um, whether it be in America and there in, in, in England, and you're in that full-time environment, and then it's a year off. And because you've got a year off, and that's all you're working off of the fact that you've got one year working holiday visa, you don't know what you're going to do with it, you don't know where you're going to be. But ended up going to, to Perth in Western Australia, and that was because my family were there. So I've got an auntie and uncle there. I've got um, uh, cousins there, uh, nephews and nieces there, and stuff like that. So. Uh, that was the going over there. But before actually arriving there, I did a little bit of research because I thought if I'm going to go to the other side of the world and football has been my passion and, and has been all by the, through playing and then going into into coaching, I should probably know what's happening, what's on the scene and stuff like that. And other than knowing that Terry Venables had done a stint over there to try and get him to a World Cup, I didn't really know much at all about the Australian scene. And I thought I'd be doing injustice to myself. But also if I was going to have a conversation what Paul was over there just to get a bit of a background so I actually went onto the old um, uh, Google and then it was literally just typed in um, Australia uh, football and then that brought up um, the the, the A-League um, which was still very much in its infancy um, at the time and then starting to look around what A-League clubs were, were there at that time um, but then what suddenly dawned on me was just how big geographically Australia is and it's not just a country it's a continent and I was just going into one side of Australia but there was all these clubs all over the place and it absolutely I just looked at it and go how do they even manage that um, it, it's difficult to do it in the UK and, and having seen it in the US and obviously there being a conference and stuff like that there's no conference uh, conferences there it's just one league there's only 10 teams and you fly from one end into the other and by the way there's another team that actually plays out in a different country in New Zealand and then they're flying over here so then how does that even work that's it just was incredible so I was very quickly getting an education on what football looked like um, and then sort of like just before the, the, the introduction of the A-League and then the NSL before that um, when I was in Australia when I actually landed in Perth I then had tried to have a few meetings with people within the Western Australia scene of football and uh, to be fair they were incredibly accommodating so I was able to go into Perth Glory just to spend a couple of days and have a look around um, and they were absolutely fantastic with that and then there were lads at the time uh, by the name of Mark B who worked for um, he worked for the member federation. So then I started to get an understanding of what the member federations look like. So you've got the governing body with Football Federation Australia and then the member federations are responsible for their footprint depending on where they are in the country. So the way West is responsible as the member federation. He was working for them and it was also trialling at the time for Perth Glory. So that then gave me an opportunity to get both from a member federation point of view and then and it was literally doing nothing more than just going in and having conversations and having chats and then 
Um, Mark did a lot of stuff and the, the, the coach, um, the bringing the kids through the system, but his ethos, um, and again, being from the UK himself, was all about fun. He just wanted to make fun and exposing players to different types of football, and, and whether that be futsal, street football, 11-a-side or small-sided games, he just wanted to them to have fun because in turn that would mean that he would have fun. And he was quite infectious. Um, so then an initial meeting then turned into, well, I wouldn't mind you seeing some of, doing some of these things, bringing them to life. I wanted to see him walk the walk, not just talk the talk. And he, he, he was, like I say, infectious. And uh, he allowed me to come in and start doing a few futsal sessions, working with the kids of under sixes through to under 12s. Um, and then, yeah, that, that's basically then I started to think, I'm only here, I've only been here really for sort of six weeks. I have only just scratched the surface. Um, but I, I could actually see myself staying here. Um, and that was basically then, there was that, that light bulb moment, if you will, where it's like, yeah, I reckon I could actually really consider living out here. The weather's beautiful, by the way. Uh, the beaches are absolutely amazing. And if you can do a bit of coaching on the side, that's absolutely fantastic. So back to lifestyle again, it's quite the similar to America, <laughs> to be honest with you. So I'm just thinking about myself and having a good time. So, yeah. And so, yeah, he, he threw me a little bit of work. And um, that little bit of work, then after being there for 12 weeks, an opening became available and they were willing, this is football, they were willing to sponsor me. Um, they didn't know how to go through the process. They hadn't done it before. They didn't know what it looked like. But I had a UEFA B, which was unheard of at that time. And um, back then, in terms of coaching accreditation, what um, level they had there was, was, wasn't anywhere near advanced. Coach education was only just coming in. So literally, when you talk about opportunity, coming in and being in the right place at the right time and having accreditation at a UEFA B level, and, and that was actually seen, believe it or not, as a skilled, I was able to get a skilled visa as a professional coach uh, on way for B. Unheard of now because it's yeah. gone through the roof of coach education here in Australia. Uh, can one taking an opportunity, the right time, uh, in the right place. And I actually did the, um, the application process myself. Um, so I went through that full application process and they, they fully endorsed it. They paid for everything for me, but if we haven't done it before. We're happy to go through, fill out all the applications. Um, and I'll never forget and uh, whether I should say this or not, but if anyone does get that opportunity again, there's one little box in the application form that says, do you want the visa for two years or four years? 100%. I'll take the four years. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I got, a, I got, a, got a four year sponsorship. So it was, it was, um, yeah. I, and I, and I breezed through that and then that, that was it. So that's after 12 weeks. So I went from being a working holiday visa for a whole year and after 12 weeks transferring over a bridging visa and then to a four year sponsorship within 12 weeks of being in Australia. So uh, quite incredible when you, when you look back at it, but, um, yeah, very, very fortunate. Unreal. And, and you can't even call that lucky, right? Because you're the one what put yourself in that position, really. You know, when everyone goes, oh, yeah, that's lucky or this is lucky. Or it's not because if you hadn't decided to go out there in the first place, even to visit family or actually take a chance, you wouldn't have been there. So it, like you said, it is all about actually taking action and doing something. And the how from there, I mean, you, you, you quickly kind of immersed yourself in, in the, uh, the FFA and, and all their, um, I don't know what, what they're called now. Is it, it, you know, like we have county FAs in, in England. Uh, what, what are the subregions of, of Australia? So it, it's very different depending on where you're at. In, in New South Wales, where I'm at now, it's very much like that. So you have the associations who, for all intents and purposes, are the county FAs back in, right. in the UK. Um, so, But it's very different in Western Australia because you've got the member federation. But from a metropolitan point of view, there's, uh, there's around about 30,000 players, 40,000 players. But then geographically, the size of it, I think you can fit the UK seven times into Western Australia alone. Um, so it, it's just incredible just how vast it is just on one side of the world. And it's pretty much its own country to a certain extent with how it's actually set up. Uh, but then you could divide it north, south, east and west, but pretty much a model that the football west controls um, all of the competitions, all of the teams from one centralised location. Um, and that's how they operate. So it's, it's 
very, very different in Western Australia to what it is here on the East Coast at New South Wales. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, I very much, when you talk about immersing yourself into it, it, it I was just literally in, and my, my title at the time was a, a senior development manager. Um, and they were like, what is it? And so they, they, they created a position where they just wanted to grow football. Yeah. But they didn't really know why why they wanted to do it. They just knew that they had to do it. But it was like the what and the how was even this. It was basically, we've got to create this role. We want to grow football. We literally are looking for 50,000 50, smiley faces around Western Australia. You've got a UA for B. You bring it to life. Um, and that's where I was working with Mark and there's like two of us. And then it was, yeah, it was literally just grow the programs. And it was like, it was like literally getting a blank bit of paper, Mark saying, this is where we're currently at. This is what we have to conform to in terms of the governing body provide funding, much the same as what the FA do with the county phase. And then you have to justify why we keep giving you that funding in terms of the programs that you're delivering and whether that be in grassroots in more elite or advanced football and then in coach development or coach education as long as you can hit these certain markers we'll keep giving you that money um, and that's what my job was 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 just charged with just bringing football and expanding football and growing football and within the metropolitan football community but then branching out and taking it to the further football communities within the regional areas as well <laughs> Unreal. So from, from this point, how long did it take you to get into your first technical director role? Uh, it, it was four years. I was in, I was in Western Australia for, for four, four and a half years, I think. So I, I arrived in 2008 and then in 2012, um, what actually happened was that the um, role, it was called education manager. Um, at the time, not a technical director. And then uh, Hanberger, the then technical director, um, came in, looked at how they would actually uh, be, would better serve the football communities in each of those member federations and then what the structure would look like. So then he changed it from an education manager to a technical director. It was a change of position. The then uh, education manager had to reapply for his job. And it was suggested or recommended to me that I just go through the process from a professional development point of view. Never actually saw myself getting anywhere near to actually getting getting the role. But that was um, the first opportunity to then put yourself through another interview process. And bearing in mind, I hadn't even gone through an interview process when I first got to Australia. It was literally fill out the paperwork, you got a visa, and then looking for stuff. So then to go through that plan and prepare of actually sitting down looking at your, your current CV, what you've got on that CV, what you actually think is missing, and then looking at the job description of what a technical director actually entails. I was pretty, I was pretty daunted, uh, incredibly daunted by it. And you have more doubts than you have like real belief that you can actually do the job. But that was, a, that was the first time, I think, honestly, where I was in a, an incredibly uncomfortable position and had that fight or flight moment where uh, yeah, I don't really fancy this I'll, I'll just stick to doing what the job that I'm, I'm doing now I'm comfortable I'm enjoying the lifestyle um, but then I had a lot of good people around me that encouraged me to do it and take myself out of the comfort zone and really challenge myself um, and again whether that's opportunity or just being surrounding yourself with the right people that, that was really important and I actually went through it and, and was like everyone says once you've been, you've been through the process you're better for it for actually doing it being uncomfortable and getting used to being comfortable with being uncomfortable is certainly something that was the next part of my journey, I guess, that, I, that I've really got used to doing and enjoy the challenge now. Um, and unfortunately, didn't get the, the role. I say unfortunately, I was never ready for the role. Um, so, but to, to go through that and, and have that experience, um, what it then in turn did was is that Han was impressed with how I delivered a presentation, the detail that I actually put into that presentation. And then another role on the other side of the country became available. And he asked me to go through the process again. I'd already done it once. I was better prepared this time around. He once again said, the likelihood is, is that you're not going to get it, but I want to give you these opportunities to challenge and test yourself 
to see whether you come at the other end uh, better for it, which I think you will. So I embraced it. Um, and then the next one was very much in the fashion of what we're talking now. It was, it was a Skype call. Um, there was a panel and it, it was for the role in ACT, the Australian Capital Territory, um, right on the other side in Canberra. Um, the, the capital of Australia, which has only got 18,000 registered players. That's bizarre in itself. Um, so I went, went through the process. I had a lot of research um, on, on the member federation. The link was being on the East Coast, the governing body, being so close to each other and then being so close to other member federations. So then, and, and how different it was from Western Australia, where it was very much isolated the likes of Northern Territory being isolated in Tasmania as well. Um, there was a, a whole bunch of other member federations that were quite close and in constant contact with each other. So I did a lot of research on that. Um, I interviewed for it. And, and funnily enough, saying about being in the gym, um, I, I, literally an hour after doing the interview, I went to go for a run on a treadmill in the gym. And then the phone rang. And just like, I, it was the CEO, Heather Reid. Um, she said... Uh, how do you think you went today? I said, yeah, I've done, I'm a lot better than I went the first time around. I went through this process. She goes, well, you must have because we would love to be in a position to offer you the role. Um, and it was like a bolt out of blue. I, uh, I wasn't expecting it. Um, it was obviously, there was a little cheeky little smile come out and I was, uh, I was quite happy. But then it suddenly became very, very apparent that I was potentially picking up, being settled in Western Australia and having to make the decision to make the big leap of faith on my own, no one else, completely on my own, to go to the other side of the country and literally start all over again, where I had a good family network, had a good friendship circle, I had football, I had a full-time job, I was in a beautiful part of the world, and then had literally a week to decide if I was going to make make that move. Um, and, yeah, so I, I, I made that decision, uh, packed up within three days, and then found myself in the ECT, which was almost like acclimatising back to British weather again. So it was, yeah, it was, it was an, un, an unreal situation, unreal situation I found myself in for sure. James. Yeah, well, great story. Absolutely. Such, such great detail in there. And just picking out a, a couple of things that you, you've mentioned. Uh, the first is I just want to mention that Warren's not on a green screen there. That is actually the weather in Australia. <laughs> Most of the time, you're right. Well, there's like always sunny and, sunshine, and and right well, now you know, there's the license running behind me, mate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there you are. And I just wanted to doing, mention they're actually that. doing their mock assessments. They're doing their mock you assessments go. right now. We're there on you go. Day, day nine of a B license right now. So yeah, that's that the dream. backdrop. Oh, fantastic. So you've got the co you've got the coaches out there making better better decisions, hopefully, and you've got that fantastic backdrop. A beautiful sky, football pitch in the background. What else could you ask for? That's why I changed my background, by the way, so I was getting a bit jealous of my white painted walls. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, obviously moving on to something a little bit more uh, serious is that the comment that you made about being uncomfortable. Uh, and I think this is something that coaches everywhere, uh, not just coaches, it could be any industry, is that when you mentioned that when you make yourself uncomfortable, you basically grow would be that the kind of idea that you were mentioning because being uncomfortable puts you in a scenario when you've done something, you're doing something different and you have to learn how to overcome that and challenge yourself. What I'd like to ask Warren is had, there's a lot of people out there that would avoid that and avoid that kind of feeling, avoid that scenario um, probably for the fear of not being able to, to, to deal with it. But once you've got yourself in that scenario, you've decided, right, I'm going to go out and listen to, to Warren Grieve today. And he said that making yourself uncomfortable is going to help you be, become a, a better, better professional, better person. It's going to help you grow. How do you deal with the specifics of being uncomfortable in that, in that moment? What would, what would be the advice that you would give to, to a coach or, or a professional uh, going into that for the first time? Yeah, it's a... It's a great question. It's a very tough question um, in the fact that you don't ever know what that person's going through. All I know is what I've gone through as an individual um, and being challenged. But it was never challenged in a way whereby if you don't do it, 
you're not going to get the job. It was always within an environment whereby we'd like you to have a go um, at doing this because it might stand you in good stead. So it almost takes off the harsh edge of yeah, if you don't do it, you're not going to advance. You're not going to get to where you want to go. Um, but the reality is I didn't know where I wanted to go. It's, um, I've almost done my career completely back to front. I, I, I never made it as a top, top professional player. And the top, top professional player then goes on to being a coach. And then from a coach being a technical director or being a national team coach, etc. I've almost done my career back to front where I, I've gone into having a very limited time in, as a player in an elite environment, which potentially now looking back was probably more of a sub-elite environment. It was still semi-professional to a certain extent with how it operated. Um, into then going into coaching, grassroots coaching, etc., and then completely bypassing a whole part of the coaching journey to earn stripes through to then being elevated, put into a situation where you're in a technical director as well. Um, but I was not not that I was ready for it, but I was better prepared for it because going through that process the first time round gave me that opportunity to then test myself and then being being comfortable afterwards. And then the second time round was in a better position to actually deliver more because I, I'm just topping up all the time. Um, but it, you're always going to be in uncomfortable positions in life, not just in football, but with everything that you do. But then you're hoping that you use your life experiences and the environments that you've been in, the people that you surround yourself with, that will assist you. And I think that's probably where I've come from. I've, whether it's been directly or it's uh, by design from an unconscious point of view, I've surrounded myself with people that will assist me to get better, knowing that I'm not the best person at that time. Or will I ever be? Um, and now I've become incredibly comfortable with knowing what my strengths, but more importantly, what my weaknesses are, and then how I actually bring people into my team that will complement my strengths um, and knowing what my weaknesses are, making sure that the weaknesses I have, they don't have, they have the strengths, and then we work off of each other. Um, and, and that's a challenge in itself. That, that takes time to develop. Um, and, and I hear stories a lot of the time where coaches will say, young coaches will say, I'm, I'm ready for the challenge, I'm ready for the challenge. But a lot of the time, they don't actually know what the challenge is. Um, and I think once you start to do your research, once you start to do or take yourself on that education, uh, and certainly from the manage self-managers, learning about yourself first, that's, big, that's probably the biggest recommendation, is if you try and even manage someone else, learn to manage yourself. Um, you're never going to be able to control yourself or emotions. All you can ever do is manage those emotions and how you actually communicate with people face-to-face, -face, verbally, visually, etc. What you say in spaces and who you're with and at the right time to speak and the right time to listen more. Learn that as well. But just manage, learn to manage yourself before you manage others and that will slowly allow you to then challenge yourself in a way you've probably never been challenged before. And that's where that whole... Being, being comfortable with being uncomfortable comes from. And, and I now, it's, it's a, it's a um, quote, a great quote from Steve Jobs, obviously, uh, I never want to be in the room where I'm the smartest person, but I, I truly believe in that now, that, that I'm comfortable with walking into a room where I'm not the smartest person because I want to learn. Um, and I'm more than happy to go up to that person and say, you've got far much more experience than me. I want to learn from you. I'm not here to try and take a job or anything like that. I just I literally want to learn. And I think if you're able to go in with that sort of mindset, um, that breaks down barriers very, very quickly and it removes the whole ego thing as well. So um, I don't know whether that's actually given the answer you were looking for. Um, it's a little bit long-winded, but um, they're just draw, drawing on experience and then how you harness that to be the best person you can possibly be. Roz, I think it's a fantastic answer and um, I think you articulated it really well. And I think one word that you didn't use, which I think comes out of your answer, is, is humility uh, and consciousness of your own humility to go in there and listen and derive knowledge and have relationships that, and we've said this on this pod so many times, in football, unfortunately, there are a lot of big egos. Leave your ego at the door. And uh, go in there as a sponge, go, in, go into everywhere as a sponge. And as I say, you can listen to so many things and you don't have to take them all on board. You have to pick out the good bits, pick out the bad bits, but know 
when there is somebody talking, they've got something to say and you have to listen and then you're going to learn a lot from it. And then, yeah, speak at the right times. Make sure that the information you're giving is relevant and, um, and taking the information from others. Yeah, fantastic answer and great bit of advice for anyone listening. Um, leave your ego at the door, be humble and know yourself. And, and we're all still learning. Nowadays, if you're not comfortable with your weaknesses, people can see right through you anyway. So if you're trying to cover them up, you just look like an idiot, as everyone can see. Yeah. And it, it goes to managing in, in any, uh, any organization, whether it be a, a football club manager or a manager of a company. If, just as, as you said, Warren, and, and, and James, you just uh, uh, mentioned it also. If you're not comfortable with yourself, actually knowing that someone's better at doing a, a certain job than you, then you're just on a, a long road to ruin. You've got to be really comfortable with the people around you being better than you and, and actually working together as a manager, not being afraid to even say, look, I've, I messed up there. I should have listened to you. Okay, we move on. So moving on, uh, fast forward a little bit. In uh, uh, numerous years in, in different uh, TD roles, Warren, uh, you, you're now a, a pro-license, uh, pro, pro-diploma pro holder. Uh, you've, uh, you've also then held a role as technical director and head coach at Manly United where you actually won a league title as well. Now, what are some of the challenges that you faced um, throughout these years and then going into that role, uh, specifically and especially going from uh, a kind of, even though you were still in a, a TD role, but going from mainly educator, technical director, and then having to be the head coach and lead in the team? And how did you juggle and, and balance both of the roles at the same time? Yeah, the, again, it goes back to the the sort of journey, I guess, that I've had that's been quite back to front or upside down. And going into the role in Canberra in particular, at the time, that's where all of the coach education courses were taking place from central location. Coaches would be flying from around the country or flying from Asia, um, yourselves included, coming on coming on to courses um, and I'd never actually delivered any coach education when I went to, to Canberra before, but because those courses were being delivered there, I was then thrown into another space where I turbocharged my learnings because I was in and around these courses on a weekly, monthly basis. And, and, and every year there was four or five different courses taking place. And, and, and that's probably where going about the uncomfortable part was because there's a, there's a great story um, where I had observed courses, but I was only observing for my own professional development. I didn't do it formally, where now you have, as, to be a coach educator here in Australia, you have to observe a course, then you go on to the next course, and then you deliver parts of that course, and then the third part is to actually deliver the whole course, and then you're assessed as to whether you're competent to be able to actually deliver that course, whether it's a CV or an A license. Um, so I was just there in the back of the room making notes, just watching how do they act, what are they doing, and, and just learning, learning all the time about coaching, about um, playing, what, what the, the coaching process was all about here in Australia and, and thoroughly enjoyed it and bought into it very, very quickly. But then it was on one course where Rob Sherman said, I reckon you're, you've been in six, seven courses with me now. I think you're ready to, to make the next step and to actually do one of these courses. And you've never seen anyone try to run out of a room so quickly in all their life is what I did. Uh, and you talk about being uncomfortable. That was like a, another moment where I was, so, I was so worried. I was actually petrified because he was actually being serious. Uh, but I was like, no chance. I'm, I'm happy. I've got my technical director's role. I think I'm doing quite well here. I'll, I'll take bits from this. And then literally, you no, know, next course, you're, you're going to deliver it and you're going to deliver all of it. And I, I was absolutely fretting. It was only four weeks, four to six weeks away as well. So I only had four to six weeks to really prepare for it. And in that four to six weeks, I prepared quite well. But it went until a week, the week before. I don't I slept. I didn't sleep the whole week. I, I tried, honestly, to come up with so many different excuses to try and get out of that, that course. And it was like being the, the kid at school again, the, the dog's eating your, your homework and so I can't give you anything here. And that, that was, it was horrible. You know, when you get that wrenching feeling in your stomach, you just, oh, I can't do this. You get, I'm, I'm, my hands are sweating. I'm all over the shop. You know, there's no chance I'm going to be able to deliver this course. But he's very much, 
uh, and he's, I'd still consider him as my mentor, my main mentor throughout. And again, we'll, we'll probably touch on that later on about having mentors um, as part of your journey. Uh, but he was, he, he still is the biggest mentor. He's now in New Zealand and we still speak to each other um, a couple of times uh, a month at least just to talk through things and stuff like that. But he was the, he was a very much a person that was very calm. You, you've seen him deliver coaching courses. You've seen what he's like as a person yourselves um, and the level of detail that he has and, and what he actually brings as a coach educator, but also as a technical director. And he was someone to look up to and I, I certainly look up to him now, but he would throw, he'd throw you in the deep end, but he would always have the armbands um, to, to basically save you if needed to be. So he'd never let you sink, but he'd always want to challenge you. So he'd always set the bar that was just out of reach. And then if you're not quite ready, he was able to come in and save you. And the candidates would never know. Yeah. Um, and that's what really then um, set me up for success, not set me up to fail. And I'm a big believer in that now. We, uh, I've seen a lot of coach educators out there that it's very much about, I want to show you who I am and what I'm about and coaches as well. This is me, I've earned my stripes. You're not going to tell me what to do. This is my way and this is the way that it'll always be that way. Whereas I'm very much now, I, I don't like to see people fail. And if people fail, I feel as though I failed myself because it's my job to make people succeed. So then how do you actually create that environment where we're setting people up to succeed and to fail? And that's what Rob taught me very, very quickly. Um, but by going from being a technical director and then all of a sudden doing coach education, I got through that first C license only just with his help. He held my hand. Um, but then the next one, it became easier and the next one, it became easier. And then you started to refine delivery methods and what you do and how you actually speak to people. And then uh, you lads were lucky that you, that you got me at the back end of probably delivering some course. Some of the earlier courses that I delivered, <laughs> some of the earlier courses that I delivered were absolutely honking by the way. So I don't know how I got away with it. So, uh, we're always learning, that's, that's for sure, and going through that self-reflection piece. But your original question about like then going from, I'd actually been, I worked in a member federation for near on nine years, to include WA and ACT. And then actually taking that nine or 10 years of what it was and then doing both player development and coach development and seeing the significance of them crossing over and actually dovetailing each other and one's not more important than the other. If anything, without good coaches, you're not going to get good players. Um, so you needed to make sure that you've got that mesh. But unconsciously, again, I was actually learning how to be a head coach. So I was learning all the tools that you need to have to be a head coach and then it suddenly dawned on me that all this time I never even knew where I wanted to be or what I wanted to be. But then all of a sudden, the reality is we all want to be the head coach. Uh, some might just only want to be an assistant, but anyone says that they want to be an assistant is because they're not convinced they can do the job but, and they need to unlock something because the reality is you always want to be the best you can possibly be. And, and if you don't, you're taking shortcuts somewhere. So I just knew there was like that. That allowed me to sort of like get more tools in my toolbox, really work and be on the ground, but not be tested as a head coach, but learn how to be a head coach without actually being one. And then I was lucky enough to take a few teams, whether it be NTC teams, state teams, et cetera, and, and sort of like do it with you in the youth space. And then being in the Mayor Federation for that many years, I then had an opportunity through a friend, Craig Midgley, um, was, who I delivered courses with, was moving to the Gold Coast from the northern beaches here in Sydney. And he said that they're going to be looking for another. He was a technical director of Man United Football Club at the time. And he said they're going to be looking for another technical director. Um, it might be something that you'd be interested in. And what really pricked my ears was that you, you sort of like preach for many, many years from a member federation point of view of what, you, what the clubs need to be doing to create the environment and culture is a throwaway word, but develop a culture within a club and from bottom to top. So then there's a consistency moving through. You get the conveyor belt of players coming through. So then you don't have to go and necessarily buy players and bring them in, but you're actually then selling players on and you're bringing money back in because you've invested into youth development and that's coming through and you're seeing that at the top in the performance phase with your first team. So then that that really, yeah, that, that, that having that conversation with him sort of like really gave me that next bit of motivation to want to, to go into that type of environment. So I set up a meeting um, and, and, and went into that role and um, they, they accommodated me straight away. They were, it was funny, they, they look at you and it was the classic, you're too, you're overqualified for this position. Why would you want to do this position? And then once I explained it and articulated 
pretty much just what I've said to to you guys there is that they they bought into it straight away. So it was like an interview without actually having an interview. Um, they had fantastic infrastructure. They had good they had a good setup with their governance in terms of they have their within an association, but they're the only club. So they're seen at the top of the pyramid with the club. Um, and then there's a, they've got all the feeder clubs that feed into that club. So um, they had finances behind them. So they had good infrastructure, good governance, good finance. And now the next layer was, um, and Craig unfortunately didn't get the chance to finish it off, was how do we get that technical component in um, that will really start to drive both good coach development and player development. So I, I, I sold that vision to them. They bought into it. And then I've only been in the role for, for three months um, and started to just bed down a few of the things in the foundation. I was there through pre-season, which was really good. And then um, the head coach came up to me one night at training. I was just watching his training session. He goes, can I just have five minutes with you? And I comes at all. And he just said, um, obviously, you know, it's just a hobby for me. It's not my full-time job. Uh, this is what I do for a living. There's a chance I may have to relocate to to Melbourne for a year um, and I've got oh, we, I've only been here three months now I'm going to lose the head coach I hope it's not something I've done I said um, and he's, he literally said to me he goes look I've only worked with you for the last three months but obviously what you're trying to build and we, you've got a similar sort of vision and philosophy the way we actually see the game being played at the top level everything that you're trying to do with the younger age groups I think it might be an idea to um find a coach or co uh, find some coaches that obviously fit that mould but he said I reckon it might be worthwhile you taking it on in the short term um, and then we literally just went through what that would look like and then what that would mean to me from a time point of view uh, how how difficult that would be to manage it uh, and again I was lucky that I had a good good team with me um, and then it, I, I, what we'd done is, is I actually um, the first thing I did Sorry, I'm going to bore you to death with these stories, by the way. First thing I did was, was actually bring in there was a, the, 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 the association. Um, so Craig's role was actually, he was a coach educator and um, with a technical director. So he was expected to do coach education for the association and be the technical director and be the head coach. So he was assuming three positions. So it was just unrealistic. So he then he went from being, he didn't do the coach education anymore. So that started to fall away a little bit. He didn't, um, he was doing the head coach's role, so that fell away. So then they brought in this uh, Paul D, and so they brought him as the head coach so he could focus on the technical director's role. But the coach education side was still falling down. So the first thing that I actually did was convince the boards um, and the MFA, who's the association, that you need a coach education manager to just run coach, community coach education within the association, grassroots level, just get it about how do we actually get parents potentially because they're the, the ones that are going to be coaching creating an environment where it's just fun enjoyable and the kids are engaged and they're going to come back next week that's what we need so they signed off on that and then uh, Chris Adams who's been on your show as well um, was one of the candidates um, he, he came over from Western Australia and he just there was something about him straight away that he just seemed like he was the right fit everything that he said everything that he was speaking about. He had all the experience. Again, another guy that had come from the UK to WA and talking about sliding door and all that sort of stuff, just missing each other at a certain point. Because I think I just, I when I left from WA to go to the ACT, he just arrived into WA. So it's quite bizarre how things work out. We offered him a job and he had to go through exactly the same situation I did. He <laughs> made the decision to lift his whole life up from, from Perth, Western Australia and come over. And then, uh, we worked together very, very closely, but because that was that position had been filled, I didn't need to worry about that much uh, that side of things because there was someone there and we could keep an eye on it. But then it freed me up. So then, so the reality is, I've been prepping, preparing for this moment my whole career. That opportunity might not afford itself again. So again, it was another one. You're, you're going to be uncomfortable now going through all the emotions that I've been through so many times, whether it be about uh, going into full-time coaching, uh, just in, in grassroots and then coaching state teams and NCC teams, going into the technical director role, uncomfortable moment there, then getting the opportunity to now really test yourself in what's considered the second division below the A-League and, and work with a lot of players that had played in the A-League and played professionally in the UK and have come back um, to, to Australia in that next level. So that was, that was a new challenge. And it was, um, I was prepared for it because of 
the years, the 10 years previous where I'd learned how to be a technical director, learn how to be a coach educator. And it just gives me so many more tools um, in the toolbox to, to then be in a position where I was comfortable now to give it a real good go and a real good crack. Um, and and uh, yeah, as I say, the, the, the rest is, is history, but it, it wasn't without its challenges. It wasn't without its ups and its downs that always happens. Uh, come out of the back end of it, um, we, did, we did quite well, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, you did. You did all right. Uh, a nice little title win, but how how did you enjoy it? Or or you know what were some of the challenges? And I'm thinking about more like player management now. So going into like a, a role where you you are mentally prepared for it, you've also learned and and you've been viewing uh, different coaches, uh, especially being at Canberra with some of the national team youth trainings, etc. What, what did you find was challenging as in player management or was it fine with you? Is that something you enjoyed? Uh, and, um, you know, did you find any, any difficulties with getting on with players and, and, and even, even staff in them terms? I think the pro licence um, was, a, was a big one for me going on to the pro licence. And um, I, even on my A licence, I was surrounded by ex-players, soccer, ex-socceroos, played at the top level, played in the English Premier League, played in the Scottish uh, Premier League, yeah. played in Europe, etc. And that, and I, I walked into a room and then all these ex-professionals are looking at me saying, who's this guy? <laughs> um, and that, that was quite daunting on the A-licence. But when I went into the pro-licence, a lot of the ones that are actually on the A-licence were also on the pro-licence, plus more. Um, and then a lot of them are now actually coaching in the A-league or are actually gone or overseas now and coaching national teams um, overseas in Europe and stuff like that. So what that did was that I, I, I wasn't in fear. I was able to back myself. I believed in what I, what I was doing. I believed that I had the, the skills um, and I had the mindset to be able to sit next to anyone. It didn't matter who they were, regardless of whether they played 200 times um, at club football in Europe or they played for their country 50 times. Um, and, got, and got 50 to 60 caps and, and they were absolutely top-notch players. But what I quickly found out is they were all in the same position as me. They were learning as coaches. So they weren't as players. So they, you had to take the player hat off and then just look at them as a coach now. Um, and then I'd like to think that's what they looked at, at me at as well. So then when it comes to managing on the pro licence, managing myself, then be able to manage others, you got an opportunity to actually pick a topic of or an area that you, you want to better yourself in. And it could have been anything, analysis, strength and conditioning. Um, I went more down the psychosocial avenue, which I still think is a, a big part. It's in, in all levels of football at the moment. It's quite prevalent um, across the world, certainly in the UK right now, but 100% here in Australia. It's a missing piece. Um, so I went into self-reflection um, and analysing myself and who... I thought I was and what the perception of me was and what I thought it was, was obviously completely different to how other people uh, perceived me. And it took me, mind the pun, it took me down a rabbit warren in terms of, I, I thought I was, was going to nail it and then all of a sudden I'm going off in a different direction. And to this day, I'm still doing exactly the same thing. Um, but going through that, and again, we talked earlier on about the manage self, manage others, it allowed me to then indirectly start to create environments where I could deal with conflict, but conflict would very rarely rear its head because of the environment that you put in place, noting and yeah. knowing what players are like, because I've been one myself, preempting what types of conflict situations that you might get and therefore already having a strategy or a tactic to um, negate those as often as possible. But when they did come up, you're in the best position possible to be able to deal with it and actually get someone to walk out of the room understanding why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and, and then it's a, the classic, you now you hear, hear me all the time, and on, even on this B licence course, I think they're sick of me saying it. All start with the why. If you can actually articulate why you're doing something, that everyone goes for the what and the how, but start with the why. And if you can do that and you get buy-in because they believe in what you're actually doing, it'll make it a hell of a lot easier for you moving forward. And you're never going to get it right 100% of the time. And you also have to be comfortable with that. You're going to make mistakes. And you've said it before, Matt, that you will make mistakes along the way. But you know pretty much when those mistakes do happen, you're best prepared to be able to deal with them. 
and, and having the conflict management skills or tools to be able to, to move forwards um, and, and deal with. I certainly now would like to think that I don't, even at the top end with players, I don't deal with them as a team, I deal with them as individuals um, and, and try to, to get to know them. And from, a, from an NPL1 point of view, it's still very sub-elite, semi-professional. Some of them have got desk jobs, working IT all day long. Some of them working on building sites, sparkies, plumbers, the usual sort of stuff that we, come, we went through um, when we were back in the UK. So then deal with what potentially they're dealing with outside of football. But when they come into your football environment, they're there and they're going to have a good time. It's not a chore to be here. They're there because they want to be here. They know that it's going to be a good time. And we talk about making it fun for kids. You've got to make it fun for, for senior players as well. So um, that, that's what we try to do. That's what we try to do. And I think we, we were quite successful in, in doing so. Um, but there's always learnings. There's always things when you look back and you go, Oof, I could have done that a little bit differently. <laughs> but yeah, that, that, that's basically what we try to create in terms of environment. James, anything to add, mate? Yeah, no, fantastic. I think we'll just say when you said that we, we might get bored here. That's not true. Like, this is fantastic stories and fantastic information that everyone can listen into and learn from. And, you know, it's, I think the detail that you've gone into is, is, is absolutely fantastic. I just want to you know, go back to that point of making mistakes. It's, um, I think that vulnerability that you could, if you can provide the vulnerability to your players or your staff, wherever it is, to say, look, I'm here, I'm open. It's just a really incredible way to, to connect with players. And you know, you've said it exactly. It's all about the relationships. It's, it's about knowing the players. But if you can show your players, obviously not that you're too vulnerable and you're open to attack, but that you are human and that you're going to make mistakes and we'll make them together. And you know, you're happy to have that conversation, that back and forth then that's one of the keys to, to, to driving your own success and success of the team. So, yeah, just another great message that you've put out there for, for young coaches or senior coaches. Coaches have been in the game for a long time. You know, just, um, just assess that and try, try and build on it. So, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Right? The, the, rea- the reality is you, if you've got 22 players in the squad, number one to 11 are always going to be happy, mate. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, how, how, how do you deal with the others? And, and, and that's, that's an art in itself. <laughs> that, that's yeah, exactly. And we we had a we had Jamie Day on, uh, Bangladesh national team manager from uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he went into a new club. He had 40, 40 players on the squad list. <laughs> <laughs> he Good said luck with that. the best, not the best situation to walk into. <laughs> Was well, just to finish on, mate. Obviously, uh, people listening should be able to take away their own kind of uh, little nuggets there. But if they haven't done, what, what advice could you pass on to aspiring coaches, current coaches looking to develop themselves in, into a better coach, but a, a person which can basically believe in themselves to achieve more? What, what, if, if any, what advice would you give to them to, to keep going? It's from, from me listening uh, to you, even though knowing you uh, previously as well, you know, I'm, I'm really inspired by your journey and how you've uh, gone around with improving yourself. So is there any advice you could give to others? Yeah. Um, get out there and do it. Don't talk about doing it. Um, and and you, I hear a lot of people uh, come in and say, oh, I could have done that. Well, the reality is, no, you couldn't because you haven't. So you, you can't tell me that you could have done it because you haven't done it. So got, everyone and has always got excuses. It's always it's easy to have, have excuses and, and say, I, I've had this going on, I had that going on. But if you really want it, you've got the bit between the two, you'll get there and you'll find a way to get there um, and challenge yourself. Uh, again, support network, have good people around you. Uh, be a good person yourself first and foremost, have good people around you. Have people that are going to change you, not just be uh, say yes to your face and then say something behind your back. That takes trust. You have to create that as well. Um, and through all of that, always make sure you, you, you go through just the plan, prepare and then deliver. Actually make sure you go through the self-reflection part and actually really challenge yourself. And if that's the one of advice to take out of this. 
people say, yeah, I reflected on that and I could do this, but go deeper than that. How do you really actually delve that little bit deeper uh, to be the best person you could be? And that, that, that's probably the, the, the biggest advice I could give. Take yourself through that self-reflection and, and just be, be a good person. You're going to get it wrong. You're going to make mistakes along the way. You're going to do things at times where you don't come across as being a nice person. Um, and that happens and that's just the, the nature of life and uh, we're all primates uh, you, you can't control your emotions you can only manage them and you can't control other people's emotions you can only try to help them manage their own emotions through the environments that you actually uh, put, put forward and whether that be as a coach educator a, a coach of a senior team of a youth team and, and and understand the stage of development that you're actually working in as well there's a lot of the stuff that i've talked about today which relates very much heavily towards senior player that you can still take a lot of stuff away from that and apply it to the junior space but the problem is there's still a lot of coaches out there that are actually operating with junior players and treating them as if they were senior players and and, and that's a, a huge concern to me as well so understand the stage of development and then build an environment and accordingly to support them on their journey uh, so it's not just about you being the best person you can be but making sure that they're going to be the best person they can be as well in your football environment Mate, absolutely smashing, mate. Thank you for them last words and thank you for your time coming on. Uh, for myself, I'm sure for many of us, it's been very, very inspiring to, to talk with you and, and listen again. So thank you for your time, mate. And uh, look, I've, heard, I've heard stories going on in Australia and whatnot. I hope everything goes well for you in the future and uh, all the best. Yeah, thank you, Warren. Fantastic. Loads of great learning in there. Thanks for sharing your time. Really enjoyed it. I appreciate it, Ed, and it's, it's always good to chat and uh, we'll stay connected uh, and I appreciate your kind words and thanks for having me on. I apologise to the listeners if I've bored them uh, over the course of however long this takes. You might have to edit it out just to get it down to a 20-minute one, mate. Just do a soundbite. That'll do. They'll be all right. They have to listen to us every week, so it's all right. <laughs> <laughs>